I did have a plan. It was not a great plan. The first two weeks I moved here, I had an internship and I had a job as a nonprofit theater telemarketer. And two weeks into being here, none of those had worked out. Hello and welcome once again to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I am the host of this podcast and the producer and host of the long-running No Name and a Bag of Chips variety comedy show and <laughs> a thousand other offshoots. Thanks for choosing to spend some time with us. That voice you heard up front is the wonderful storyteller David Lawson. I love talking with this guy and it's interesting because I, I you know, I first met him as a storyteller, which he indeed is, and he's a, a really fine one. But I, I'm always fascinated by the world of storytelling. I, I spend a lot of time traveling through the world of storytelling, but I don't live in it. I like I feel like I speak the language now, but it's still not. It's like when I when I'm going through the storytelling world, I always feel like uh, people are going to hear an accent, but I can communicate. I can get through in here. And what I always find interesting about storytelling is is uh, there are a lot more interesting paths to people who become very serious about storytelling than some other endeavors. Uh, you know, uh, singers usually wanted to sing from a young age. Actors, you know, they discover acting at some point and they, they've got the bug. Stand-up comics are, you know, people who've been damaged from birth and they eventually get there as a way of figuring how to deal with their being damaged. All, all interesting different paths to stuff, but they tend to be a little bit more singular where it seems to me, uh, you know, I imagine this will change as storytelling as an accepted art form becomes more uh as it becomes more defined i guess as a regular public art form i'm always curious to find you know you, you have people who weren't making it in comedy and but you know they could tell funny stories they get there you have people who are writers who discover they're liberated when they're actually sharing their stories on stage and david is one of these many accidental storyteller. I don't know if he, he would look at it that way, but he came from a place of being entranced by acting in the theater and things of that nature and kind of discovered storytelling along the way. And I, I think he's had a couple of interesting journeys. One is of getting to be a top-notch storyteller and that also of becoming a top-notch New Yorker. <laughs> he's not a native. He's the kind of person who gets set up here and becomes a real New Yorker. And anyway, uh, I'll let him tell his story in our conversation, but that'll happen in a minute. In the meantime, I, I want to let you know something that's very exciting. We now have several uh, storytelling shows lined up. We're back to being monthly. No Name is doing a monthly No Name Super Story Party at the lovely Word Up Bookshop up in Washington Heights on the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. We're doing a monthly, and the plan is that in the fall we will go back to being a weekly at some point, and then we'll have a lot more stand-up in our mix than, uh, than just the monthly storytelling editions. But for now, all right, get something to write down with. Uh, we, we, we've got shows scheduled for uh, Tuesday. May 9th, Tuesday, June 6th, and Tuesday, July 11th. Uh, those you can book. They are, they are there. Uh, the lineup for our next one, the May 9th show, is 
pretty awesome. If you know anything about the New York City storytelling uh, scene, we got a real winner there. Um, did I say wiener? It's, I'm sorry, we've been doing a lot of recording today. The lineup that night, Asher Novak, Adam Selbst, Jenny Saldana, and Leslie Goshko. Yes, the creator and host of Sideshow Goshko, the much-praised, long-running story series. If you heard her episode with us on a, on a past No Name NYC podcast, maybe done, but maybe not. Anyway, she said she had a new story she wanted to play with and, and come out and and play with us, so uh, we're really excited about that. And those shows at Word Up are free. They are all 7 p.m. They are free, but donations are gratefully accepted for these shows in this wonderful community institution up here in Washington Heights. I also am very excited. David Lawson, our guest today, is going to be part of an insane lineup as we return to QED in Astoria. We are doing that on Saturday, May 27th, 7 p.m., I don't know if tickets are on sale right now. Now, this episode will be dropping on May 1st, so uh, it'll probably be on the calendar by then, but tickets will be available in advance. We encourage you to do so. Why? Our lineup for that evening is Ophira Eisenberg, Leanne Lord, Liz Mealy, Charles McBee, and local storyteller David Lawson. The music will be provided by Alex D'Souza and Richard Binder, acting as our house band known better as Binder Sues. And frequent no-name guest and collaborator, part of the Summer Replacements house band for our other shows, Miles Blue Spruce is rumored to be making a drop-in appearance. And there's no better reason to go than, uh, than to support the amazing QED voted New York City's best comedy club. And they made it through the pandemic. They've done amazing work. Go support. Tell friends. Come see these amazing performers. Come and play and buy lots of shit while you're hanging out there. <laughs> Books and, and snacks and food and all that stuff. Anyway, hope to see you on May 27th and, and at all the shows uh, uh, Word Up. And, well, look, enough of me babbling. Uh, David Lawson's got a fun story to tell. Uh, we're going to listen to him tell his story in just a minute. But first... Escape to Green Bay. That's right, the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast at a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events, and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E dot com. 
get away to Green Bay. So how are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good today. Eric, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. This is the case with most of the people we, we have as guests. I like to describe it as getting to know people I already know. Yes. You know? So, like, for example, like, if, if I didn't know you a little bit, I might very well mistake you for a native New Yorker. You are not a native New Yorker. I do know this. Uh, how long you been here? I have lived here for 15 years. I am always complimented when anyone ever thinks I grew up here. I take that as a compliment. I'm sure there have been a couple like, oh, this guy's a piece of work situation, <laughs> which I also why not take as a, you know, depending on what I'm being a piece of work about. I moved here in 2008, Eric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up in Annandale, Virginia, Fairfax County, about 15 miles outside of town, like northern Virginia, like, you know, D.C. area, Virginia, mm-hmm. Orange Line, Silver Line, Virginia. So how do you like growing up in that area? You know, at the time, I liked it. Uh, going back is always strange. I don't ever plan on moving back there. I just... You know, uh, I love comedy and I love theater and I love the arts and it's all over New York City. The fact that I walked down the street to do a podcast uh, with someone who's been in in New York City show business for as long as you have, Eric, not as easy to do in Annandale, Virginia. Um, But uh, (laughs) Oh, you can find people who've done what I've done in in Virginia. Yeah, that that I understand. But uh, (laughs) I I did like growing up there and there were so many things, you know, and... Pretty much everything I loved got me on the orange line into the city, going to the 930 Club to see a uh, concert or, or going to, to see the Caps or the Wizards play like mm-hmm. or going to see a play like like yeah, theater and music and, and sports. And it's not too shocking that I uh, you know, you know, ended up moving to New York and living there. So it's a it's a great place to grow up in a lot of ways. But just I my one of my biggest things is that I love mass transit and I hate cars and uh, New York for all its flaws with both those things. uh, Robert Moses inaccessible MTA is still pretty good on those two things for the most part. Yeah. What was your first time you remember Paul to like move elsewhere? Pretty young. I would say like middle school when Mm -hmm. I was starting to like get into the arts, understand, like, and that's when I started realizing that... Uh, what was your entry into into the arts? Theater. What, what first? Big theater guy. And I mm. still am a theater guy. You know, I, I rub elbows with, with stand-up world and doing storytelling shows. The thing I love is it's such a catch-all. You get, like, you know, you could be on a show with, like, a, a set-up punchline comic and, and a playwright and, like, a mental health professional. Like, I love, <laughs> I love storytelling for this reason. But I think when I was in middle school, I really realized that I wanted... I just wanted... I, like... Loved the Northeast in particular. I went to college in Boston at Emerson College. Mm, um, Alex DeSouge went there. You know, I do remember that. Uh, uh, Boston Red Sox fan, Alex DeSouge. <laughs> I think we've had that conversation. Uh, I, and because uh, the, the campus really changed, uh, even in the time I was there, it was there 2004 to 2008. So it's mm. like we went to different colleges. I mean, you, you know, the the uh, from Spalding Gray and Jennifer Coolidge and Jay Leno, uh, really uh, dr- uh, names all over the floor know, here in the recording studio. I've just been dropping them left and right for all these examples of people. But tons of people uh, went to Emerson College. Uh, you know, um, it's the type of place you could be like, what famous person? Uh, went there with you, David, non-famous person, and I'll, you know, 
Dan Peralt, Matt McGorry. Uh, for its comparative size, the n- number of names of people who went on to become famous is, is pretty pretty interesting ratio. So it's like that's part of the sell. Like, come here and you get a degree and a few names to drop. I, I am so happy I went to that college. I, I really did learn a lot I would not have known about. Like, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, these playwrights I didn't know, all these theater movements I didn't know about. Um, even the idea that a person could be alone on stage not telling jokes, like Anna Devere yeah. Smith and Spalding Gray and all these great, you know, one-person shows, which is like my, my favorite thing in a lot of ways. The student body when I was at Emerson, I have thought about getting a tattoo about what I've thought over the years. <laughs> they were all too good for everything. The tattoo I think I want to get says, I'd rather be a part of anything than above everything because these they really just could you know oh this movie sucked that song's overplayed and oh overrated they always so i heard i to be honest uh, my you know public high school uh, wt woodson in fairfax virginia much more positive nurturing mm-hmm. i had like a what's good culture there like oh i heard this song oh, you gotta okay. hear it david it's gonna blow your mind i saw this wild movie you know they're chopping up people with a helicopter i don't know like just like crazy horror movies or uh or uh, dead alive with the lawnmower i don't know just i don't know why i'm thinking of that uh but then when i went to emerson it was a lot of people being like this sucks this is overrated i'm above this i'm better than this but it also seems to me that some of that may be just a generational thing like high school for a lot of people is when you're first discovering all the cool shit that came before you or or maybe even the cool shit that's coming out now and college is when you think you've got it figured out and you start to have opinions on stuff and you want to make sure that it's clear that people know you know what the good shit is and what isn't so some of that you know, some of that may flatten out in the years following college. That is a very good uh, assessment of that. Uh, in fact, I'm still very good friends with some some folks who I think were too good for everything, who have been humbled by gears or how hard it is to make even a mediocre piece of anything, you know, how, how hard it is. Um, but that's a great point. That, that is college. I mean, are, are, were they assholes then? They, are they smarter <laughs> now? These people I'm thinking of... Um, we're not attaching names. It'll be all right. Some yes, some no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess that's also part of life, too. Some people progress and some people just stick, yeah, get I, stuck in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Your first draw with theater, was it, I want to be an actor and I want to, you know, or was it just, I just want to be a part of it somehow? I have to tell you, I still think I, I just want to be a part of it somehow. I never really knew of storytelling as a genre besides it being an element of other art. Mm-hmm. There are stories in, in video games. There are stories in films and TV shows and songs, all these things. But I, I didn't know about like live onstage storytelling, which is the three words I use, which has just been the thing that I've just been sucked into over the years. I've run mm-hmm. a, a show here in Astoria, Queens for almost 10 years of that. I, I, I teach that. I get booked to... I was on Long Island doing a show last night. So... It really was, you know, I wrote plays, I've acted in plays, I was in, you know, I did I did all these things, but um, really the whole time, including now, just wanted to be a part of it, Eric, is really the answer to that, yeah. It didn't start out with, I want to be an actor. It was like... I think it actually was. I want. Oh, okay, I think, I think that, that, that's my I think question. so many people see that first, and they're like, that's an actor, right? Like, Denzel Washington, uh, you mm. know, that's an actor. I see that person, they... And, and uh, like, I'll give one. Like, I was a huge Steve Buscemi fan because I, I mm. he had all these like 
uh, now I know the under five minute rolls are under five line rolls. Like he's just like the guy in Billy Madison on the other end of the phone when uh, Adam Sanders <laughs> called. And I was like, Ooh, I just want to do that. Like just be, and I still uh, would love, you know, that's almost, I, I joke about this, that if I could just have a small role in a movie that people watch all the time, if I could be like Santa Claus in Home Alone, like that's the like the one who he talks to. He's like, I know you're not the real Santa Claus. If I if I could just for the rest of my life be on a bar stool, be like, Hey, you see Home Alone? Yeah, I'm the guy that Kevin McAllister. <laughs> I think I'd be pretty as long as I. I that's not the you're only. Think it's thing. time for a revival, then, don't you think? I mean, I am. It would reboot. Be, it would be amazing if if in doing my thing, I could rub elbows with, but. I'm going way off topic. Yes, I think acting is is a big thing. Cause, and I think that's a in for a lot of people, I, I would say. I believe the first time I ever saw your work, you were uh, promoting a solo show about being a flyer guy. I thought your storytelling was solid, but I remembered thinking that, that you had a theatrical point of view. And it, like I was wondering if you were a storyteller guy who was expanding into a solo show or if you were solo performer who is culling from your piece a story to tell because of the format. Good observation, because somewhere around there, like, because the year I actually moved here, 2008, to New York City, Mm -hmm. is when I first did, like, a one-man show, you know? Mm -hmm. And that is still the thing I've done the most of. That's kind of the way I got into storytelling. I was like, oh, it's not like a stand-up set. It's kind of like these, like, one-person shows I've been seeing around town or at French festivals and stuff like that. So I guess to answer your question, I, I was doing uh, a story from that show, Flyer Guy. I I was a couple Flyer years guy. into into doing uh, the the one man show thing, like seven eight years at that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I did uh, do a couple out of town dates for that show, Flyer Guy. Uh, and I was in New York. I was a Times Square Flyer Guy for several years. And um, the performance thing, theater first is what brought me to that and still where I come from in in a lot of ways performing stuff although I will say that the flip side to that is I try to you know you got to talk to the people in the room I always try to like make eye contact with half the place while things are going on I did learn that I think from a lot of comedy people but uh yeah and I was doing a bit from a show you know just warming something up and I still do that I still write these longer pieces but you know like shunk take out 10 minutes and and put it into, you know, a set. Yeah. Did you come to New York straight out of Emerson? I did. I didn't even walk at graduation, actually. Oh, I was, really? That is like one of my, like, I was so raring to go and I was kind of done with Boston and done with college. When you headed here, what was the plan? Did you have a plan? I did have a plan. It was not a great plan. I remember the first two weeks I moved here, I had an internship at Dixon Place, which remains just a, a wonderful East Village institution that I later got to perform my one-man shows at, uh, which was a, a pretty big honor for me. Uh, so I had an internship with Dixon Place, and I had a job as a nonprofit theater telemarketer, and two weeks into being here, none of those had worked out. And I was going on auditions and was a few years away from realizing that that wasn't really sticking, that... Uh, that I had more of a, if I was gonna find my place, it was gonna be more as an independent artist than just doing a two minute monologue and getting cast and you know. um, Did you do the 500 roommate thing when you first moved here? Pretty sure I had like nine roommates for two months at a place in Bushwick in early 2009 in just a converted warehouse that was Mm -hmm. still 
very warehousey. Oh, and I didn't live there too long, but yes, and I had uh, three roommates for years, Eric. Uh, and now we we have the same place on our own. You know, moving on, nice. up, uh, you know, one by one, killing off the roommates. And yes, didn't it need was exactly anymore. that. It was exactly that. We, we, you know, everyone was on the lease, so like we, and I don't want to kick anyone out. Not really my thing. <laughs> so uh, I was actually just last April. So you had her do it. No, no dice on that. <laughs> but it was just we are. I'm still on year one. Uh, just no roommates and just me and Paige, uh, Paige and I. So I was not a working actor. I had two of my friends who were working actors who I lived off of 34th Street for three years here in Astoria. Uh, and I had 15 total roommates in those three years because they kept booking wow. gigs and going out of town. And I would live with some random person who would treat their room like, like a, you know, like a motel. And I just, oh my goodness. So wild. I'm still friends with those two people who, uh, who were <laughs> my roommates for some of that time. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of going out of town um, for, for them. So I've done the gazillion roommates, Eric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. How about the, the day job? That, that's also evolved somewhat recently uh, because I was a museum flyer guy for a long time. And mm-hmm. then I just was, became in like, Guest relations, like working inside various roles at, at museums. Um, I worked uh, the Discovery Museum on 44th Street, Rolling Stone Exhibitionism down in the West Village, Van Gogh, the Immersive Experience uh, down uh, near One World Trade wait, Center. Wait. And recently, I actually have been working with Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning. I've been a program coordinator the last few months. They have teaching artists go to senior centers around Queens. I'm just a few months into this job, and it's been great. That's been a good job. And I did similar program coordinator work with Queens Theater and Flushing Corona Meadows Park. So it has been good these last few years to have more of like a nonprofit, you know, arts background kind mm. of uh, going from you know customer service stuff to to more you know getting emails from a thousand gazillion people and uh, a little more of like a buttoned down job, I guess. Yeah. We've got how the living thing has gone. We've got how the paying for the living thing has gone. So what's going on with you uh, in performing and in the art, in your in your true work, not the work that pays yes. the bills always? So I always do these these one-man shows. I've not, them, not to be no. presumptuous that they don't pay. But oh, no, no. I, I understand. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Going uh, with the picture, we've already painted some of that. You know, the two jokes that I've made about that is... Uh, uh, sometimes people will be like, great show or, or, or something like, oh, what a good insight or some compliment. That, uh, and I'll just be like, that's why they pay me the some bucks. <laughs> a line I've used a lot over the years. And also, uh, oh, that's why I make half a half a living. I've also used that line in the past. Um, <laughs> my, my variation in that has always been, thank you so much. Can I borrow five bucks to payday? <laughs> and they laugh and I said, no, seriously. Can, yeah. can, I w- I'd like to buy a post-show beer and get it, get back on the subway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, heck, I still think of the Stephen King line about if you write something or perform something and someone hands you something and you could pay your utilities that month, you're a working artist. Which is not entirely true, but it still feels good to get that. <laughs> Depending on the time of year, I mean, if it's like July, your Conad bill, you probably need a little, probably, you know, a hundred something, right? I got like, oh, I don't want to speak for everyone out there. I'm sure someone like, oh, you don't know that life hack to bring down your Con Edison bill? This is the Con Edison podcast with Eric Vetter. Um, <laughs> Today's podcast is sponsored by Con Ed, working hard for you. Yeah, right. Ugh. Anyway, yeah. 
I I, I can be smug because I paid my kind ed bill earlier this week. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as far as what I'm working on right now, you know, a lot of these one man shows I've done over the years are are kind of driven, like obsessive driven. Like mm-hmm. I did one on the steroid scandal in baseball. I I, I did one on. Um, you know, just working as a flyer guy and just having this front row seats to like contemporary Times Square, you know, the post Disneyfication, but still like the four costumed Elmos, what's going <laughs> on, you know, a lot of like the CD hustler. Like I was really embedded in that whole culture and that's what a lot of that show is about. So you asked about all my museum jobs. <laughs> I had this museum job for three years where I worked in this room at this museum that had this machine with 128 cameras that took your picture. And we would well, I've heard the, about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think sorry, I performed stories. That, and, and we would 3D print figurines of people who came to the museum. I did this job for a while. It was actually was kind of a step into the button-down world, like a lot of like, you know, data handling and like thousands of people did this. Um, it's a pretty interesting job. But that job, in a lot of ways, was an intro into... All this new tech stuff like the uncanny valley and artificial intelligence and deep fake. And that job gave me a real perspective into all this stuff. Like I would hear constantly at this 3D printing job, people would be like, that's creepy. They would ask me, can you make me look thinner? Like I would see how technology that was based on people's appearances and people's look was affecting them. And with the whole chat GPT you know, mid-journey artificial intelligence explosion and all these special effects where people fall into what's known as the uncanny valley when something looks human, but it doesn't look human enough and people get upset by this. This happens, you know, with a lot of special effects, like with She-Hulk last year or when people didn't like that, like Sonic the Hedgehog had human teeth, like all these (laughs) things that like are any human things that basically, long story short, the next show I'm doing is called The Uncanny Hour which is based on my obsession with like deep fake and AI with this experience that I had a couple of years ago working with this appearance-based technology and seeing yeah. people feel certain way about it. So that's what I'm working on. It's called The Uncanny Hour. Do you have dates for that? Yeah, we'll, we'll plug it later on. But oh yeah, yeah, I am doing it. It's so funny you should, you should ask because I'm, pl- I'm doing it like 10 people max at this place, but I'll still plug it. I'm doing it on May 10th at Creative Studios. It's RSVP only, but uh, I'll get you all that. Just because I, I, I'm doing it uh, really small, just because I want to do kind of a back to basics thing where I don't have to worry about where it's going to go. I just want to get 10 people who I know are going to like it, who are going to have a good and just bounce this. It's almost a workshop performance that I'm doing on this then, show. Then it's easier to identify the hecklers. Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's that too. But I'm just taking a break from like the Dixon Place, Brick Theater, The Tank, uh, The Crane, Under St. Mark's, all these places I've performed. Uh, but uh, just, just doing something just at this small workshop space is, is where that's, I'm just going to... That's kind of yeah. interesting it, it, that with an eye toward developing it to take to a larger venue potentially, or having uh, fun? Potentially seeing where it goes from here, seeing if it's a thing and also trying to let go about of some of this where can it go thing. I really am just trying to do this hour in front of people who are going to care about it and see what happens after that. The thing I'm taking now with this new one, The Uncanny Hour. Not to say you can't plug it. would love to see someone there uh, who hears about it from this show. 
But yeah, just 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 a different way of doing things. Yeah. What were the first jobs you had performing wide when you came to New York? So when I came to New York, ah, you know, it's so funny. The first job I think I had, I can't even remember the name of the theater company, but I got it was like a backers audition, like a script in hand thing. They were trying to put together these and I would get booked to do, and I think it was like a drink ticket situation. Mm-hmm. And I can't even remember the name of the company. What I can remember was it was at a place called the Times Square Arts Center. Oh, I, I know of them. And now I think it's Times Scare. That space has gone through some weird oh. uh, permutations over the years. That that used to be a oh, porn spot. Oh, Eric. Uh, or a peep show spot. When or I tell that you age. that we would be on stage and I would still see the filled up hole from where the pole used to be <laughs> from the strip club, I would be like, hey, Ma, I made it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and even well, even wilder, I watched that Netflix true crime doc about uh, Times Square Killer. I think uh, that uh, strip club was in the documentary. I was like, Wow. Little did they know I would be in a backers audition of the complete works of Shakespeare abridged on the same stage where people were, I'm pretty sure, just having sex Amsterdam style for a crowd. <laughs> in between then and when it became Times Square, it was a comedy club. Exactly, which I think Times Square Arts Center was like the comedy club thing. Like I met Joe Franklin doing this job, which I, which I think a lot of people have like. Were you in New York when Joe Franklin had a spot on 8th Avenue? I was here for the tail end of that, yeah. I used to have a gig many years ago where the, a foot messenger in New York and a lot of our clients were showbiz people. And one of our clients briefly was Joe Franklin, I, I believe. I know we, we had clients who dealt with him and I had to deliver something to his, his business office one day and went in there and let's just say it might have been where the pilot for Hoarders was shot. <laughs> uh, you know, here I'm expecting this is going to be this amazing archive of of fascinating, you know, uh, showbiz geek type stuff. And it's, no, it's like this pile of dusty things, this pile of dusty things. And uh, uh, just... What year would you say that was? Eh? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, My guess would be the early to mid-90s. Gotcha. It was, I, I just know, I, I kind of, I kind of, I know when I went in there, I was thinking I, I should have contacted someone to let them know I was there in case I disappeared for a while. You know, like, you know, <laughs> go hey, check this building on 42nd Street, uh, you know, whatever it was. Hey, but, you know, uh, just us talking about, the, you mentioned tail end of, of something. I So uh, moving here in 2008, I caught the tail end of one thing and the beginning of another thing, which is I, I always associate seeing the OTB still, the off-track Oh, jeez, yeah. I caught just the tail end. I think the last one closed in 2010. And the thing that I also got to live in pre-smartphone New York City, just for a little while. Yeah. iPhone was out, but it was just like, oh, I, an iPhone? What, I got to give you $2,000? You know? And I did, I admittedly, drop $800 in 2019 for my iPhone X because... <laughs> That's why you have 900 roommates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, they don't break. That's Or at least mine hasn't broken. The roommates? Well, no, that's, oh, uh, okay. that's uh, the, the roommates do break. But but I did get to live in like pre-smartphone New York. In fact, Eric, we're talking so much great New York history, which I mm-hmm. always do. Uh, whenever we're hanging out, uh, you always uh, tell me about all these cool things like the Mayor's Trophy game I learned uh-huh. about yeah. from, from you. Yeah. Uh, but, and some of the things I tell you were true, by the way. Yeah. 
I will never forget when the last, well, now it's back, when the last print edition of the Village Voice came out, whenever it stopped mm. in like 2015. I remember the ink smudged on the a white otter box on my iPhone, that the ink from this printed page was staining my smartphone, the thing that unquestionably <laughs> killed the village voice. I was like, this is such a cross-generational moment. The, the ink from the last village voice is, is staining my iPhone. This is just like a whole... Um, I'm hearing you say that. That sounds like that needs to be like... A starting and returning point for one of your stories. Have you ever done that? No, although that would be a... I don't know where it would go from there. I did get to have my picture in the Village Voice in 2011, just with like a bunch of people. But I always like cherish that, that I, you know, if you look in the archives of the Village Voice, you can, you know, know, find me in there. Um, But I don't know where else that would go. That would be a good detail, Eric, yeah. (laughs) So you caught the tail end of that era. Yeah, like the tail end of Joe Franklin, which, as he said, seemed to always be in the tail end. But uh, yeah, this uh, you know Times Square Arts Center, I did that. I got an out-of-town gig with educational theater in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Oh, wow. And that actually... You had to come all the way to New York to get exactly. to Minnesota. But I'll tell you one thing that, that I think does prove kind of some stripes as a New Yorker, mm-hmm. which is that I, in my first couple of years here, I took two out-of-town gigs that went for a few months. I did that gig in the winter in Minnesota, and I love the Twin Cities. And then I did summer stock in the summer of 2009 in Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I met some of my best friends that are still some of my best friends to this day. But after that summer 2009 gig really made me realize I don't want to be the kind of person who leaves New York City all the time. I missed (laughs) New York like something wild. Really did not want to live. I think I was like, hey, I'll do, I'll be an artist in a medium-sized city uh, or whatever. I love the Twin Cities, like, you know, smaller than New York. But, um, and I was like, ah, this is okay. Like, I kind of hate driving and, you know, the Guthrie's nice, but blah, blah, blah. And then, like, I tried doing, like, hey, I'll be, like, a summer stock actor. And, you know, like, you know, doing Anna Green Gables, uh, you know, <laughs> for the summer stock crowd is, is, like, not my thing. And I missed New York so badly. When I came back that fall, I was like, I'm not I'm not doing that anymore. So that, that kind of, uh, that was just in my first, like, year and a half in New York. I thought, you know, to answer your question, I thought I might be an actor, like, leaving town to do these gigs. And I did it, and I was pretty unhappy and felt uh, homesick, honestly, even though I hadn't lived here for very long. I really missed New York, yeah. Did, did that uh, have any impact on you? And Like, when did you first start self-producing? My uh, first time self-producing was uh, the first time I can remember. So I did an apartment show of... <laughs> oh, of, man, nice. Of, yeah, of, of uh, the baseball show, Uh I, it was called "I'm Not Here to Talk About the Past," which uh, <laughs> was something Mark McGuire actually said under sworn testimony. Uh, and and really, Eric, to, to be honest, because we're both big baseball fans, <laughs> that I did that show when I was 22, and it was really me reckoning with the fact that I thought I was growing up in this golden era of baseball with Barry Bonds oh, and Sammy Sosa, yeah. and Mark McGuire, and I. It was really a time where I learned that like uh, your heroes are fake, achievements cannot be real. Cheating is cheating. And that was eye-opening for me. That really, that was, that was you know, seeing how the sausage is made. And the show was kind of about that. Mm. But I did uh, the Frigid New York Festival in 2010. Oh, wow. With, uh, actually, to kind of go full circle, with a, uh, a show I had called uh, Floundering About. That was, enti- that was an early show of mine that was entirely about 
9-11 from the DC point of view. You know, just the wild year after that with um, not just having to drive by the Pentagon on 395, but also like the anthrax scare that was just gold bond or, um, you know, like the DC sniper, just all this stuff that was very of that era that doesn't have the national profile of, of what happened in New York for obvious reasons. Cause it was, you know, uh, just uh, God, even comparing that seems uh, uh, very upsetting and wrong, mm. but uh, was just trying to tell it from the DC point of view. And, yeah. and that was in New York doing frigid back in 2010 when it was still a, a relatively new festival, like year four or five, maybe of that festival. And I was at under St. Mark's, which is, still going strong. I was just there a couple weeks ago seeing shows and I just went to a bunch of Frigid New York festivals. I, I directed a show in, the, in Frigid uh, in, in 2022. But uh, that was a big link for me. Getting to know Erez, getting to go to the Crane and under St. Mark's in the Red Room at the time they had, which is still around, but it's not under their uh, management anymore. Mm -hmm. But that was my first, like, you know, I got six shows of this and I'm like getting reviews and not all of them are good and that's <laughs> okay. And, uh, I'll also say, especially because they're back and you, and, and the drama bookshop is huge for me too. I just, and I, and I actually still, I love the new version of the drama bookshop too. Just a massive room that yes, had Sam Shepard and Marsha Norman and Eugene O'Neill, but also had just playwrights. I'd be like, who is this? What is this? What is going on? Well, I'll be like, oh, what the, how, the, the stage directions say the walls are bleeding. How did they do this? You know, <laughs> reading plays was huge for me. When I get to see uh, like uh, uh, the world premiere of a, a hot new great play, uh, sometimes I think of the times where I would be reading the stage directions in, in suburban Virginia, wondering how it was produced and thinking, well, now I'm sitting here and, and I see it happening. And I and uh, because definitely I, I didn't see a Broadway show uh, until I was 20 years old and was visiting New York uh, when I was in college. But because uh, I didn't grow up, you know, even going to arena in D.C., I would go there just once a year. But because uh, reading plays is just huge, a huge in, I think, for a lot of people. Um, so I, I'm right there with you on that, Eric. Yeah. So really, your most of your first performing experiences in New York were the the solo shows? Yes. Probably the way we met, Eric, was about 10 years ago, I started to realize that all these comedy clubs had these storytelling shows, uh, you know, between... Um, you know, something like the old UCB East with Julia Whitehouse, who's still hosting her show at the duplex, um, to, you know, like Union Hall or the Bell House or, or even Caroline's for a hot minute there had a storytelling show. That's true. Well, and, you know, this was all of its spot to, to the then growing popularity of the moth. Exactly. And, and I always, I knew the moth, but I thought the moth was like a very literary, you know, and there I was on the border of that nation thinking I'll never see my family again. Like I thought it was very NPR and I, I WNYC subscriber guilty right, as charged. Right, okay. Right. Uh, nothing against NPR, but I thought it was that, but I think going to these comedy shows that were storytelling, I was like, Ooh, Ooh, this I can relate to mm -hmm. because sometimes I felt a little too goofy for theater and this wasn't too goofy. It wasn't too serious. Theater needs more goofy. Yes. Dude, theater theater but... could use some more goofy. And uh, I'll admit to that. But, but really it was when comedy clubs started to have these storytelling shows and hard to have these mics. And then I would, you know, I started going to these, these shows. About so you started, started by going to mics? I did start by going, going to a few people's mics and then just getting booked on, on shows. Like just from, cold going or anyone that you knew? Just literally cold going. Uh, in, in 2013, because I was just like, 
well, I can find five minutes from these one-man shows I'm doing and do them on stage like I did when I first met you with that show Flyer Guy. And I started doing that. And then we just start doing things like five to 10 minutes on their own for these things. But really, it did start with just about 10 years ago, cold going to places like UCB East and performing and then meeting people at those shows. One thing led to the other. And yeah. What did you like or dislike about those as opposed to your, your solo shows? I love one person shows. It's great getting to have a theme and a story and a point of view. And just this year in particular with with the Soho Playhouse has that that uh, that storytelling series that I like Ophir Eisenberg, uh, who I think has been on this show. Uh, or is yeah, that, she's you know, already been on the yeah, podcast. And like, and, and like uh, people like her doing a, a one woman show at Soho Playhouse. It's become, you know, uh, it's a great time for that. And there's like. Oh, like, you know, Hannah Gatsby's special. Everyone's mm. like, is it stand-up? Is it theater? And I'm like, hey, who who needs to pick a lane? This is all wonderful. But it was really getting to see 10 people in a night, seeing a bill of people like stand-up, seeing everyone performing a story and um, different from just like the, you know, one at a time for 60 to 90 minutes. So really getting to see so many different points of view uh, in one night that was the thing that, that made it really big. And, and also getting to do it in a, in, a, in a less sacred environment, I guess. You know, uh, those UCB East days when, um, you know, like the improv class would be exiting the main stage <laughs> in the middle of someone's set. Uh, like stuff like that. Or, uh, you know... You know, in theater, you don't get a lot of people arguing over their their drink bill <laughs> when you're trying Depends on the theater, yeah, uh, trying to land the ending of the story you're performing on stage. Right. Uh, what does happen a little more at comedy clubs, and is a good thing to you know tune you into. Yeah. In in the theater, you don't have some newbie comic that you can pass off the check spot to. Exactly. Say, <laughs> uh. so, hey, you know what? We'd like you to be a part of the show. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, uh, now the last five minutes while everyone's... Oh, oh, crap. Yeah, the check spot. So, what else is going on? Um, <laughs> oh, my man. goodness. The, 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 I, I haven't been to any of these new movie theaters, like the Nighthawk that have, like, or Alamo Drafthouse that have, like, food. But I do know that in the last ten minutes of the movie is the equivalent of the check spot. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I just remember hearing a stand-up uh, a writer, my friend Mac Rogers, did a good joke about seeing Zero Dark Thirty, uh, the movie about the the Bin Laden search, mm. and he had a great joke about you know I never thought I would have to be calculating a twenty percent tip while I was watching Osama Bin Laden get shot in the head. Wow. <laughs> so. So that's your your Oscar film equivalent of the check spots is, uh, is yeah yeah, yeah. It, 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 not exactly how the, the the producers intended it to be uh, received yeah uh, man well it, so what did you what did you like about uh, performing in the storytelling shows versus the solo shows and did you notice differences in the audience check spot aside? Yeah. You know, but in terms of uh, how the audience interaction or the vibe you were getting from, from them. I, I think, I mean, the, the biggest thing is getting to be on a bill of performers. Like I said, like just getting to meet so many different people, different points of view, the adjustments you have to make for the act before you into the act after you. And, and I love hosting a show and you're so wonderful at Eric too, at, at resetting the stage for, for the next person who's going to be coming up and, and even, you know, just having the, the lineup and, and all stuff like that, but also just, just having it be, 
having a place where I could work on stuff too. Take 10 minutes from a show, see if it can be self-contained, see if it's interesting enough, not even in just laughter or not laughter, or just like, now that I'm standing up here in front of, you know, uh, 35, 40 people at uh, Word Up, as you know, as many people as you can pack in there, uh, really getting in there, trying something new and being like, I don't think this is working. Not just because they're quiet, just because I am feeling the energy mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, this is not working or feeling people get switched on. And, you know, like with this new thing I'm working on it, they're just like, ooh, you know, uh, 3D printing, strangers. Ooh, interesting. You know, uh, you know what? Let me let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, a because you were doing solo shows before you got immersed in the storytelling scene, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, like now, I, I don't know if you do this, but doing the storytelling shows affords you the chance to both uh, tell good stories and to kind of test out stuff that may be in the show, if if you so choose to use yes. it that way. Had you developed material for the solo shows or would it just like just write it and then put it out there and see who salutes that's a great question i should also mention the great thing that happens sometimes is that the solo show like quote unquote dies it's run its course it's gotten booked everywhere it's going to get booked but i still have like a good 10 minute story out of it mm-hmm. and i can keep mm-hmm. you know getting booked on shows with that but you know writing the- you ever, so you ever have that experience like huh, put all your your life and work into in, into a an hour-long show and they're like well, there's a good 10 minutes. And I'm fine with that. If anything, it's better than I've had some shows where there's, I'm on stage for 60 and all 60 is done. It's never going to be done again. It was a mistake. <laughs> Whoopsie, you know. But, um, you know, to answer your question, just a lot of it comes for, for me from that like obsession based or that theme based, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to write as much as I can about this thing and then seeing how it flows. And, Ooh, take that out. That's a little beside the point. That's running a little too long. Dude, dude, and like a great thing about solo shows is I might have a two minute thing that I really, really, really like. There's just no way to make it fit within a 10 minute thing um, without it being way beside the point. So it's really writing on that theme, writing on that obsession, uh, you know, that that interest that I have. Um, that's uh, uh, cat entering the room, which is uh, another New York City classic podcast thing, I would say. <laughs> And, um, and 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 it's a trademark of uh, this show uh, any well. of the sessions we we've uh, we've recorded There's in Miles Home a, Studio. Yeah, cat cat entrance. Everything. What, what's the yeah. cat's name, by the way? So there's there's two cats. One of them is Cat. The other one is Gato. Oh, so that's this one is Cat. Okay, hey Cat. Wow, that's. I mean, I feel like actually, it, you know, the, the the best moment. I'm would sorry. that just flip yeah. if we went to a Spanish speaking nation? Would that like? <laughs> I never thought of that, like because then I'd be like, "Wait, hold on! I don't know why you'd be traveling with your cat smiles, but if that ever happens, let me know how that how that works." Well, that's out. actually that's actually you know you know how how a, a stand up show or a storyteller show will give you like here they give you the cat. Yeah, they get so, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, I got two minutes to wrap yeah. up. Okay, uh, no, actually the the oddest thing I, it, last month we we had an episode with Robin Beatty and uh, we recorded it at her house. And she had a cat that sat on the table between us for almost the entire uh, conversation. And at one point, the cat got up and walked over and rubbed noses with me. And I must have jumped like 20 feet because I, I could no longer see the cat coming towards me. The hell? It, I think Robin's still over there. Who's doing this with my uh. nose? Uh, it, was a little, a little, it was actually very sweet. But it, until I knew what it was, it was like, oh, that's. That's that doesn't normally happen in podcasts. And actually, uh, just to, just to mention, just the, a that doesn't 
But just since you mentioned Robin Beatty, hey, this is a great person I met doing those shows, and I. I saw her one woman show, which had all those great stories. And the Nancy like, Drewinsky. Ah, uh, I. Is I did that, an earlier one. I'm not sure if if that is is that the one about her her like being like a red diaper baby, if I'm remembering right. Like she had communist parents during the Red Scare. I I believe that's some of the topic matter. Yeah. I don't know if that's the, the that's, same you know, show because I've not seen this show. Just to bring it full circle, yes. I mean. That's the type of people I met and continue to meet doing storytelling shows. That's an incredible story. And these people, Robin's a great enough writer to make it such a compelling thing that I'm pretty sure I saw that show four or five years ago or something. I could still remember that mm-hmm. unless I'm completely wrong. Uh, and that's, but no, I'm no, that, sure, that's sure about yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to say you're completely right <laughs> on, on the show that I was asking about, but I've not seen the show. So, yeah. you know, but yeah, I, I know that there was at least uh, material. Anyway, point being... Yeah, Robin. Robin's a pillar of the New York sto- storytelling uh, scene. I mean, she she extends beyond New York City, but Absolutely, definitely if yeah. you get it, but if you get immersed here, like she's someone you're going to run into at some point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how, how did she see? We, we another good thing we've been doing is the constant diversions, which I think should be any part part of any podcast. You know, <laughs> I, I always think like when I am. On the subway, it's good when like, oh, they're talking about something else now. Okay, all right. Oh, here we go. We're going to another. As long as we don't get showtime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that that can be hard. That and going from uh, uh, 59th Street, Fifth Avenue to a uh, 57th and Seventh. Uh, that is in, that is a podcast killing part of the New York City subway on the N <laughs> and the R train. It is so loud there, especially if the windows are open. Now I really sound like a native New Yorker. <laughs> Actually, uh, you do. Although I sound very millennial saying, ooh, it's very hard for me to listen to my quiet podcast in this <laughs> loud part of the subway. But, yeah. <laughs> and see, my take on millennials has always been that the volume is turned up so loud it doesn't bother them. Yes, and you know, I, I, I probably have been a little guilty as charged of that as well. Yeah. So- I I, I I feel bad. I you know, I was just making a joke. I did not mean to alienate the the millennial who listens to our podcast. I'm sure he'll he'll forgive me. Um, <laughs> oh no no no! I'm kidding. No one's yeah. listening. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, but so so but uh, so to, to some of you know, in terms of uh, storytelling shows versus the the solo shows, um, you you uh. You got to meet all the different people in the storytelling show, but uh, in terms of of format, do you, do you have uh, what do you like about the one versus the other? What I like, I would say the easier thing to compare it to is to stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. Why I like one better than the other? Both to it's a better fit for me. I've just never, I've always been really happy to perform at some some comedy clubs, like like getting on at Union Hall or, or QED, you know, here in the neighborhood that I love and getting to meet Camry and getting to do shows with comics, like a word up. But my big thing is I just love the beginning, middle, end and the themed nature of storytelling that we that there's an arc, that there's a structure, that there's more of a journey. Don't get me wrong. I love jokes, love jokes, love raw jokes. Mm. But I think I'm just more gravitated than that than set up punchline, set up punchline on any given, you know, and jumping themes, theme to theme. If it's my writing and performing better, and as an audience member, I I, I enjoy it better too. Um, Which do you find more enjoyable or or or, uh, or challenging in terms of story arc writing for for? Telling a story or writing for your solo shows? Um, ooh, more challenging. It's got to be the one-man shows just because it's already so hard. It's already such a big ask to, 
you know, hey, come see me for one hour. That's like already a, a big ask. They come natural to me. I can write them, but writing them in a compelling, interesting way is is harder in in a lot of ways. Um, um, I think I would go with that. That being the harder thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 another question that just occurred to me, and I realize it's maybe a dumb answer because the the dumb question because the answer maybe none of this shit pays. But do you, do you, has any of this inherent in bleh, enhanced your earning power in terms of earning for uh, to pay more of the bills uh, without a day job? Well, un, unquestionably, yes, to get to get quite candid about it, which is that and, and in recent times and, uh, you know, I'm on a, a contract basis with this job I'm really happy with right now, but I'll, I'll name drop all of them. So sure. I'll, I'll tell you the three like, I think of them as like lily pads, like I'm a frog, you know, jumping thing to thing. Um, very cute, I uh, think. But, okay. In, tw- in March 2014, I started hosting the Astoria Bookshop Storytelling Show at this bookstop bookstore that at the time was only seven or eight months old. So I like ground floored there. Oh, I didn't know how, I, I didn't know it was that yeah, comparatively and, new. And I'm here nine years and later. What, was that your first time hosting a, a storytelling it show? It was my first time hosting a storytelling show. And nine years later, I'm still doing that show. The Astoria Bookshop is actually relocating and I'll still be doing it there. But that was like lily pad number one. I would say that in 2019, I got hired by Queen's Theater entirely because of they wanted storytelling because storytelling i also think thinking from a business point of view it's a good way to get a very diverse lineup in the arts mm-hmm. you got four indeed po- that is something that we focus on yes. uh, michelle carlo and i with with our that you uptown can series. that you can get all kinds of folks not not just just age and class but you know ethnicity sexuality you know uh, gender everything you could just really get, uh, you know, all kinds of things on a storytelling show. And then in 2020, Queens Theater uh, had me run all this stuff as a program coordinator for their storytelling online. And I did that for a lot during lockdown and and during Omicron. I did that as well, even after the vaccine. And then that unquestionably led to this job I have now with Jamaica Center Arts and Learning. So a lot of that- And what are you doing there? I am a program coordinator for their senior centers, working with teaching artists, which- I've only been doing it for a few months, but I have, uh, it's been very fulfilling. I, I, I love working with, um, you know, a, a nonprofit arts place, all these folks who coordinated senior centers doing good work and all these teaching artists who have these wonderful backgrounds who have, who have, have worked at, you know, places that, uh, you know, sculptors who have done stuff at Socrates Sculpture Park, for example. I know nothing about the sculpture world, but I love that park here in Queens. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes, unquestionably, Eric, and, and for anyone who's listening, actually, I, I do think sometimes it can be BS that if you do what you love, the money will follow. But in a roundabout way, yeah. I mean, I don't have a book deal or a Netflix special. Please, please, please yet. hire me. Please, yet. Please hire me. Help me. Oh, please help me, listener. But um, but in all seriousness, I, I am doing fulfilling good work right now that unquestionably started from me just wanting to have a storytelling show here in my neighborhood. Um. So yes, Eric, it absolutely has led to survival job success. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, let me let me ask you this. It, it sounds like it sounds like uh, you know. I mean, every, every, saying success, you know, there's so many different ways you can find. But it sounds like something of a success story uh, in terms of 
what you dreamed of doing in uh, in growing up in in Virginia and 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 here and now. I mean, maybe not the final destination, but certainly the path. Um, what would you like to do in the future? What is it, are there things? It, it, not to suggest that you would not be fully fully fulfilled by what you're doing now, but are there things you're doing now that you would hope springboard or lead to other things? What what, what do you want to do that you haven't done yet? Um, great question. I would say having a longer run of one of my uh, one-man shows, you know, even if it's just, uh, you know, three weeks, 18 performances or something like mm-hmm. that, just having a real New York City run in the 15 years here, I've never yeah. really got to do that. And, and, I, and I've gotten to see shows change over the years, you know, like some of these Soha Playhouse shows I, I saw before they were there and I saw them when they were there and I hope to see them after they are there um, as, as, as well. Um, that's one thing as a writer and performer. Um, and then, you know, Eric, since I know we're both uh, baseball fans, sometimes <laughs> sometimes I do feel like with these arts nonprofit jobs that I've moved into the last few years, I do kind of feel like the utility infielder who's gone into being a bullpen coach. So, so, so you're thinking there, there's a few openings for utility infielders, maybe? I feel like I already. I'm thinking the A's or the Pirates would be good candidates right now. I I feel like I already was uh, and remain a utility. I mean, the arts, you know. Luckily, unlike sports, (laughs) you don't have to like give it up. Like, I still kind of am like Mm. the you know, like platooning at third base for, you know, for like the Oakland or, the, or Pittsburgh. But uh, also, I also am like a bullpen coach. Like when I am teaching, which I also teach at Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning, I do sometimes feel like I'm giving the storytelling equivalent of, you know, if you would just bend your finger like that on your fastball, you might get a couple ticks up on the mm-hmm. speed gun, which the equivalent of that is, you know, um, Hey, I, I I think this part about this is interesting, but I think it's it's getting in the way of this part of the story. Or like, have you thought of you know you briefly mentioned this? Would you want to mention that more in the story because that is in some ways more intriguing than the thing you're focusing on? Like, I I, I kind of feel like a bullpen coach who also gets to continue. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to Frank Robinson who has a player coach, but sometimes oh, that's I feel, only because you're modest. Yeah, well. <laughs> I love Frank Robinson, uh, uh, who got to be a player coach in baseball before that completely <laughs> went away. But um, but uh, I'm old enough to remember when he was first nominated. Yeah, uh, first first nominated, first first hired yeah. as, as a manager, player manager. Yeah, that was, that was. But in a roundabout way, I would like to continue my arts nonprofit world. You know, and that that's kind of the coaching track. Kind of continue doing something. And and I'm not, this isn't just me being hard on my sleeve. If it can continue being artist based, I really enjoyed working with teaching artists at this job. Getting get coming from an art standpoint, being like, yes, I know what a spring stage is because I know dancers and I know theaters and I know what this is. And yes, if you're throwing pots, I do know you need a kiln that can hit a certain temperature because I've known people in pottery. I have an arts background. I'm not just some bean counter. But then the other thing is it would be cool one of these days maybe to get a longer run of one of these one-man shows and just see how that adapts. Having to do it, you know, five times a week for three weeks even, I would would be happy with it. Seeing, you know, trying to get a following, get impressed, you know, seeing how it changes, uh, you know, as opposed to like one nighter here, one nighter there, this festival, that festival. Um, So that's still a goal I would like to see, you know, from – yeah. And the great part about being a teacher while while pursuing that is you can – 
get an agreement to do a run and then use your influence over your students' grades to get people to fill up the place. It's funny you should so, mention that because <laughs> wait, I, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I want to I want to find out what's gonna what sort of you know felonious. Uh, uh, Revelation is going to follow you. Funny you should mention it's that. It's too good-hearted. I'm not a good. <laughs> I have I have no doing meth at Catch a Rising Star stories for you. I guess <laughs> um, just because my good-hearted thing is I actually love not having to grade people. This is really why the thing I was again. I have no carrot in a stick. In that department. Uh, so, in other words, you're not going to coerce your poor, unassuming <laughs> students to come see your show to benefit <laughs> your career. Uh, yes, I, I, I will. I have no carrot and stick I can hold over them. All right, Miles, we're done here. That's <laughs> it. That's it. I, I tried. I did what I could. Uh, pull the plug. Gary missed a good one. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my goodness. And I don't know if this is going to make the whole thing, but just to bring a little behind the scenes. Oh, none of this is going to make it. And and, Eric, I should tell you that I messaged Miles to confirm this address, and I thought I was messaging Gary Hardcastle, who came to the Astoria Bookshop, but I was messaging a a wrong Gary, who I hadn't seen in over a decade. Oh, no. And I, you know, I'll give him credit. A playwright, this guy, Gary Garrison. And he said, David, did you mean to message me? And I said, yeah, I did. I said this because I still thought it was Gary Hardcastle. And then I was like, and I click. I'm like, oh, no, that's, oh, this is a Gary. I haven't seen it over a decade. I said, oh, no, no, I didn't, Gary. I did not mean to. And this guy, I got to give him credit. He was like, best of luck to whatever this is. About. <laughs> Which is a very beautiful thing to say. Yeah. yeah. He, he he looks at his phone, hits send, and fucking asshole uh, or that or just imagine just being terrified being like what did i agree to um <laughs> depends on what kind of life you're leading dude absolutely uh, no yeah. no judgment the method catch a rising star you know oh yeah. man it, it, you know maybe we got the wrong guess that might that'd be no <laughs> oh man yeah well i before you we release you into that good night uh Actually, it's still day, which means we did shorter than we usually do. That's <laughs> the very definition of damning with faint praise. But um, two, two, two things of great importance. One is, quick, predict, prediction for your beloved Nationals this year. Uh, my prediction? Yeah. I just want them to lose less than 100 games. That's the type of year it is. Uh, and, shoot and, for the stars, man. Go for it. potentially, they have six prospects that I hope at least four of them take a next step. It's that that kind of year. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, uh, and we can edit that out because, again, three of our listeners will care about that. Uh, um, and again, we don't have three listeners. But um, the other thing, what what do you what do you have to plug? The story book. How can people yeah. find you? Yeah. So I'm online dtlawson.com, dtlawson.com. It's you know the equivalent of a business card on a website. It says, "Hey, look at that! Look at that! All a couple of impressive things you can take me seriously." And all. <laughs> and then the biggest thing that I love plugging is the Astoria Bookshop Storytelling Show, which uh, uh, the Astoria Bookshop is going to be moving to the intersection of 30th Street and 36th Avenue. And when we get settled there, I would love to have you. Anyone listening to this? That's my favorite thing to plug because. Uh, that is, I, I met so many incredible people there over the years, heard so many incredible stories. And yes, to you know, I've had uh, I've had the experience of having someone come in there 
perform something and then the next week on like Conan or James Corden seeing that which by the way so that's that's we do the show first Thursdays every month at the Astoria Bookshop I would love to see anyone listening to this at the new venue I'm really excited about getting to enter this new chapter but I want to give you some praise Eric something that I hope you don't edit out because I think Eric in like the 25-30 years you've been doing this I have always said that there's odds are you have heard a joke on on a late night show or on a Netflix or a HBO special that was developed at a no name <laughs> show. And the full circle I want to bring to this is I don't know if you know this. This is the thing I was saving to say on mics. But this season, Gotham Comedy Club has this thing at Nets games where they have 60 seconds of a comic doing stand-up on the Jumbotron. Oh, nice. And I was not at a game where this happened, but Charles McBeast oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was recently on, and I literally saw someone share on Instagram, like, look who's doing this. And I'm like, wow, 41,000 Mets fans watching a comic who I have seen at Eric Vetter's shows. <laughs> he's not only developed, he's not only providing a platform for people to develop on, you know, The Tonight Show and Netflix, He's developing for his beloved Amazings, you know, the New York <laughs> yeah. Mets. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Trying what, to distract from the on-field Yeah, but product. probably Charles maybe developed that gag that he is doing for 41,000 fans, uh, you know, uh, during a pitching change at City Field. So, <laughs> but, you know, you know as, as wonderful as I, as I love your writing and your, and your songwriting as well, Eric, on its own. That's always a thing I've thought about that, uh, you know, over the decades, all these jokes that wouldn't be what they were if Eric didn't uh, provide the space for people to, to take the next level. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We, we, we've been we've been very fortunate to have wonderful folks. Hey, blah, blah, blah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm trying to learn to just be gracious and say thank you without babbling. Yeah, to, uh, it's a hard you. skill to learn. I, I've had to learn this, too, Eric. Yeah. Uh, really? Why? No, I'm sorry. That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> man, <laughs> I just compound the problem by insulting a very gracious man. Uh, no, thank you, Dave. Honestly, keep doing your great work. And especially, when when did the, uh, uh, the, the two things, when, when, when do you return to Astoria? Uh, it's the bookshop, they, the new location? Probably in June. Because I don't know if we're going to have a May show as of this recording, especially as of... You know, because they they're kind of you know, but but we'll be there first Thursday every every first month. first Thursday. Yeah. And the the other question: Do you have dates for your upcoming solo show yeah, that May, we talked about earlier? Yeah, May tenth. May tenth is when I'm going to do it for the first time and and see where it goes at Creative Studios on 29th Street. And again, this is kind of a, a new way to do this show. I'm not necessarily thinking of like, oh, maybe it could be at this show or or this festival. I really am just seeing if this works and how this works. And uh, I, I, I got a good feeling because every day it seems like there's another wild news story about AI that there'll be some audience there for it. But yeah, Uncanny Hour at Creative Studios on May 10th at 7 o'clock. Yeah. All right, man. Well, good luck uh, with the Nationals this year uh, because I know that's the thing that matters most to you. <laughs> and uh, no, I, thank you so much for coming to play with us and chatting with us. I yeah. enjoy talking with you always and keep doing your good work. Yeah, Eric, thank you so much for thinking of me for this. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Eric. <laughs> you 
Man, I, I love talking to that guy. I always feel a little tired when we're done talking. It's always a great conversation. It's just meaning we get going and we start running, as, as I'm sure you heard. That was the one and only David Lawson. Please do follow him on the socials and go to see his amazing shows in, in Astoria Bookshop. After all these shows he's done with us in, in Washington Heights Bookshop. I want to thank you guys for hanging out. The show happens because of amazing people working on this thing. First and foremost, our producer, the legendary Gary Understudy Hardcastle. He's the grand poopa of this whole thing. Uh, our audio engineer is Gary Hardcastle once again, and Miles Mix Appeal Blue Spruce. Our theme music, opening and closing theme music, is by King of the Hill, Courtney Hill. He wrote it and he performed it. Before we send you out into that good night or good afternoon or whatever the fuck time it is, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, uh, we always like to leave you with some music and hear something that, that's a little funny. He's a frequent contributor to our shows, uh, Miles Alexander Blue Spruce, whose band is better known as Blue Spruce. And during pandemic, Miles did something interesting with his band. He put together a, a cut that involved a 32-piece orchestra, all recorded remotely, and he assembled it together. And the 32 pieces of the orchestra are performed by four people who each took on eight parts, and Miles gave them each backstories for each of the musicians that they were embodying. And the end result is fascinating. It sounds like Blue Spruce, and it sounds a little different than typical Blue Spruce. The song is called Prequel, and it's by Blue Spruce. You can follow them online. You can buy their music. You can buy their merchandise. You can see them at live shows. So by all means, do so. Hope you enjoy it. Until next time. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all. Monstrosity Nevertheless
of the tree. 